0: Matthew chapter one, verse 18, through the end of the chapter, we'll read this passage a second time. Last week we looked at the example of Joseph. Uh, This morning we will look at the incarnation of Christ. Specifically, that he's fully God and fully man, and he must be fully God and fully man for him to be for him to be our Savior and to be able to save us to the uttermost. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 verse 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together she was found to be with child from the holy spirit She will bear a son and you shall call His name Jesus. For He will save His people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call His name Emmanuel, Which means... God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this week You have specifically burdened me just with the tragedy of sin in the midst of our congregation. Uh, Everything from rank hypocrisy to uh, subtle backsliding to uh, brothers and sisters who can't get along to uh, Christians who have mature faith and yet chinks in their armor, weaknesses. And uh, those who know You and love You and yet feel doubt, feel unrooted, ungrounded in the dark or in the doghouse. Lord, it is my great desire, and then thankfully it's even Your greater desire, to help this people through Your Word. Lord, I, I want to preach a sermon to every single individual that would help them individually, but Lord, You've commanded us to preach Your Word broadly to all Your people. And apparently, this waters the ground just right for all Your people to grow. Please make that happen. Lord, I'm thinking of Christy's grandfather this morning who was often anointed by Your Holy Spirit to preach Your Word with power. And I'm asking for that same Spirit that's come generation after generation to move mightily through the weakness of men to display the power of God. I pray this for the good of Your people, for the glory of Your name. Amen. My wife Christy and I have had the privilege of naming four children, and I think we're pretty good at it. Um, we are especially good at, at naming girls. Now, we've only had one shot, but we nailed it. Um, we, uh, we, we went into the hospital ready with a first and a middle name, and uh, by the time we left the hospital, that girl actually had that first and last name that we had planned. Now, we have a distinct weakness when it comes to naming boys. We are not good at this. We have, we're, not, we're not skilled. We do not have the abilities necessary. Now, I don't mean that I'm up here telling you I think all my boys have lame names. I, I like Luke and James and Jones. What I'm up here telling you is that we are so indecisive when it comes to boys' names. Uh, Jordana, we went into the hospital. It's going to be Jordana. We were in the hospital. It's Jordana. They handed us the, pe- the piece of paper. We signed Jordana. To this day, you can call her. Today, you can call her Jordana. With, with boys, oh my word. We went in to the hospital in labor. We're debating what should this kid be called. Uh, we got ten names. We've Googled them all a thousand times. We know all the variant meanings. All the potential. We know what grades they'll get if we give them this name or that name. <laughs> We're up on it. We understand. We've looked into it. And what's what's worse is that we actually got worse at this the longer it went along. So there really isn't a kid we have where we weren't the couple where they're sort of sliding us the piece of paper and you need to make a decision. Are there options if we leave the hospital without a name? Yes, there are options, but it's not preferable. So I just want to announce to my boys, you are fantastic last-minute decisions. <laughs> but we actually got worse at this. Our last son, Christopher Jones, we actually flip-flopped for 18 months whether or not we were going to call him Christopher or we were going to call him Jones. So this is not our strong suit, the naming of boys. We, it finally lands in a good place. But we did not have the sort of premeditated clarity That would have resulted in a lot less anxiety in the hospital. And in this, we are very unlike God in Matthew chapter one. Because what's very clear in Matthew chapter one is that God was not scratching his head and sitting in heaven going, Now what sounds good? But rather, God was in heaven with a name for his son. That would communicate perfectly who he was and what he had come to do. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, we are given two names of the Son of God. We're given his proper name, the name he was called, Jesus. And it's very clear that Matthew wants to raise this name up in our minds to get us thinking about this name because he keeps repeating it. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Verse 18, and then he comes along and he tells us that an angel appears and says in verse 21, you shall call His name Jesus. And then the passage ends with Joseph calling His name Jesus. Not surprising that such a focus would be put on this name because Paul will tell us in the book of Philippians that this is the name that is above every other name. It's above Every Caesar, it's above every Gandhi. It's the name which every knee will bow to. And here Matthew is introducing us to this name. But he introduces us to one other name. It's not so much a proper name. Jesus was never called by this name, but but it's a title. And that title is there at the end of verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now you probably know uh, most good parents or many good parents aren't just thinking about what the name sounds like and we weren't thinking about just what the name sounds like. Many of us want to convey a meaning in the names that we give. And that is especially prevalent in the Bible. The Bible is very eager. You'll you'll often be reading your Bible. And it'll give you a name and then tell you what it signifies. That is something you will experience over and over and over should you read the Bible through in a year or two years. You will often hear, and so and so was named such, and here was the reason. Because God is interested in communicating a great deal about people and what they're called to do through... Their name, the most obvious one we know of in the New Testament, is Peter going from Cephas to Petros because he would be a rock. And uh, here, when we get the name Jesus and the name Emmanuel, we should not be surprised, and we certainly certainly shouldn't think that the preacher is pulling stuff out of thin air when we see significant meaning and significant uh, understanding given to us just by looking at what Jesus was called. And what I want to suggest to you as we look at the names Jesus and the name Emmanuel is that we see in these names, just in the names, that Jesus was divine. That Jesus was intentional. Sorry, that Jesus was human. And then third, that Jesus was on an intentional Mission. These things are clear. We're going to see his divinity, his humanity, and his intentionality as to what he was doing, all just in these names. Let me show you these things quickly and then we'll hopefully apply them to us. First of all, look at his divinity in these names. Just look at his divinity in the names he was given. If you look at verse twenty-one, Joseph is told that Mary will bear a son, and you shall name you shall call his name Jesus. Now, this name Jesus uh, is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Yeshua. Many of you, if you've been around, especially those interested in evangelism, to Jews have probably heard the name Yeshua. But Yeshua and Jesus are the same name just in two different languages. And Yeshua means Jehovah saves. The name actually means the God of the Old Testament saves. And Jesus means the very same thing. That The God of the Old Testament, Jehovah, He saves. Now, just because I name my kid Jesus doesn't mean they're God. But the way in which Matthew puts this, tips us off to there's something more going on with this Jesus than just the idea that God saves in a general way. Actually, there's something being hinted at about who this Jesus is. Uh, Notice, it doesn't say, you shall call His name Jesus because God saves. It says you shall call His name Jesus because He shall save His people from their sins. This is Jehovah. This is Jehovah come to save. The one who the God of the Old Testament revealed from Genesis to Revelation, Jehovah saves. And what do we name Jesus? We name him Jesus, not because God saves in a general way, but because this child, He, do you see there in the text? He will save His people from their sins. And then you go down to that second name, Emmanuel. And then the word Emmanuel means God with us. Now, just because I name my kid Emmanuel doesn't mean they're God. But there's something being made very clear here that this particular child is being brought about in such particular circumstances uh, that you're heightened. Born of a virgin? Yes. Named Jesus? Because He will save? Yes, this one is Emmanuel. And the claim is not being made that God is with us. Just in a generic sense, hey, God's with you, He's with me. Kumbaya. Everything wonderful. No, what we're being told is that this particular child is God with us. now. We're just being introduced to Matthew. So Matthew, or to Jesus, so Matthew doesn't launch into a whole theology of the divinity of the Son of God here. It doesn't happen here. That would be awkward. You shouldn't come at this and say, well, why doesn't he fully explain? Now I want you to know Jesus is divine because he's a normal human being. And Matthew's writing to us and he's introducing us to Jesus and he's just starting with names. But as you move through the gospel of Matthew, all that you would be alerted to in these names is confirmed a thousand times over. Because as we move through the Gospel of Matthew, well, we're going to get to Matthew 9. And in Matthew 9, well, let me just read it to you. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is faced with a paralytic needing healing. And when Jesus this normal-looking man faces a paralytic named Healing. Well, this is what happens. Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, take heart, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now, In the Bible, sins are ultimately against God. And the only one who can forgive sins is God. And so for you to walk up with your friend and say, hey, would you heal my friend? Instead, Jesus says, your sins are forgiving. He's acting as if He's God. Now, you might think, oh, you're pulling that out of nowhere, right? Well, actually, no, that's actually what the crowds who were there thought. They said, right there in verse 3, and behold, some of the scribes and the Pharisees said, This man is blaspheming. He's cursing God. What's he doing acting like God? Where on earth does he get off acting like God? Only God can forgive sins. And yet, the one named God with us, the one named He will save His people from their sins, feels the liberty to exercise the prerogative of God precisely because. He is God. One of the things that is the most clear in the entire Bible is that God is the God of the Ten Commandments. He's the One who said, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not murder. He's the One who said, you will regard the Sabbath day and make it holy. The Lord of all the Ten Commandments is Yahweh of the Old Testament. And we're going to read along through Matthew's Gospel. And we're going to get to Matthew chapter 12. And Jesus is going to have a little controversy about whether or not it's okay to eat grain on the Sabbath. And the way He's going to settle the controversy is quite striking. He's going to declare Himself the Lord of the Sabbath. Now to the Jewish ear, you've got to know what's being heard when you declare yourself the God over the Ten Commandments. You're declaring yourself to be God. And one last example. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus takes the Word that He's always referred to Himself as. He's referred to Himself as the Son. Repeatedly through the Gospel, you hear Jesus referred to as the Son. Often referred to as the Son of God, the Son of Man. We'll look at these titles as we move to the book of Matthew. But when Jesus gets to the Great Commission, where He uh, sends His disciples into all the world to make more disciples, He goes, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He's putting Himself on equal plane with God. He's not saying, I the Son, tell you worship God. I mean, that's what I would say, right? I'm a Son of God. I've been adopted by God. You should worship God. But Jesus doesn't do that. He says, baptize them in the name of the Father. Then He puts Himself right next to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so the one we're dealing with here is Jehovah saves. The, The Jesus you're reading about is not a great man. He's not simply a great teacher. He is the God man. He's divine. He is one. All that is true of God, omniscient, omnipresent, all powerful, all of this is true of Jesus. Honestly, this is the end of nominalism. If you think about it for even 30 seconds. If Jesus is just a man, you can take his words, maybe live by his lifestyle. Maybe fit into a Christian subculture. Maybe do the whole Christian thing. But if He's God, then He is the authority you will face on the last day of your life. He is the One who rules over everything. And all that He says and does has the full weight of deity. Now, not only is Jesus God, but in these very same names, God communicates to us that He's human. He doesn't just communicate His divinity with these names, but He communicates His humanity as well. Remember that the one being named Jesus is a boy. He's not a pillar of cloud out in the desert being named Jesus. It's a little baby boy who just had his umbilical cord clipped who is named Jesus. He's just a little Baby boy. And then the One who's God with us, Emmanuel, isn't just God, but God with us. And the way this One is going to be with us, again, isn't like God sweeps down out of heaven like a pillar of cloud in the Old Testament, but the God with us is that He's the One who is with us as a man. And when you read through the Gospel of Matthew, what you find is you couldn't get more human than Jesus. Jesus is the most fully alive human who's ever lived. If you'll just glance ahead to Matthew chapter four, verse one, it says, "Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. He was being led by the Spirit, like a man, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He faced." temptations like we do. He was not exempt. Jesus did not walk through life with a halo over His head and His feet coasting six feet over the ground. He was a man with His feet planted in the ground susceptible to the same devil's temptations that assault your own soul. And then on top of that, He got hungry. Matthew chapter 4, verse 2, "...and after fasting forty days and forty nights..." He was hungry. No doubt. Forty days and forty nights, he didn't have a God tank in his stomach. He wasn't dealing with a little divine reserve that exempted him from all the normal experiences of being human. When he didn't eat, he got hungry. When he didn't sleep, he got tired. So later on in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 8, verse 24, we will find Jesus asleep. In Matthew 26.26, we will find Him eating. In Matthew 27.50, He dies. In every way that a person can be human, Jesus was human. We have to, beloved, hold these two things together. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man, We're going to see in a moment how if you don't hold those two things together, what He came to do fails. Because what He came to do depends on who He is. The foundation for His work is His being. We understand theologians talk about the person and work of Christ. Because who He is matters to what He came to do. So, some of the ways this has been perverted. Uh, One is there's an ancient heresy called docetism. What's docetism. Well, it's basically the idea that Jesus was God wearing a man mask. Maybe you remember Scooby-Doo. Some of you are old enough to remember Scooby-Doo cartoons. What happens at the end of every Scooby-Doo cartoon? The bad guy pulls off their mask and reveals who they really are. And we can have this idea of Jesus, that He's God and He's kind of tricking us. Really, He's not really a human. He can walk on water. He's always exempt from all the rules of nature because He's mainly God, but He managed to look like a human. That's not the truth. He was fully man. Jesus never went to India or America. He he never escaped the limits of being a man on this earth. He was fully man. Hungry? You need food. Tired? You need sleep. They nail you to a cross. You die. As limited and as finite as a man can be, Jesus fully was. But there's another heresy that comes along. Nestorianism. And the idea there is that He's fully God and fully man. He is God. He is man. But He's basically two people. Sort of there's a God and there's a man inside Jesus. But that misses what we confessed this morning. That He's One person with two distinct natures. He really was one. He he was one person. You didn't have a Jekyll and Hyde feeling when you talked to Jesus. Oh, I think I was just talking to God. Really? I just had a conversation with man. You know, you're kind of trying to figure out who this really is. He is one person. We shouldn't read through the Gospels and when we see Jesus do a miracle think, oh, there's God. No, that's the God-man doing that miracle. As a man, He was exercising faith. As God, He had power in one person. We shouldn't read through the Gospels and, and, and try to constantly separate Jesus. He is always the God-man. He suffers as the God-man. He bleeds as the God-man. He rises from the dead as the God-man. He is always God and man. Two distinct natures, but one person The entire time. And so we see Jesus' divinity, we see his humanity, all just in these names, but we also see his intentionality. I love how both of these names get defined for us. He's not content, Matthew is not content just to give us the name, but he wants us to know precisely what the name means. And what, we, what we're going to see is that the name signifies who He is, but what He came to do. So He shall be called Jesus. Why? For He will save His people from their sins. Now, every word in that phrase is important. If you were an Old Testament Jew, and Matthew had just written, He shall be called Jesus because He will save His people. What would you have thought? If you were an Old Testament Jew and you read your Old Testament and Matthew comes along and he says, Jesus will save His people. What would you think? You would probably think that He was coming to lead a battle. You were probably coming to think that He had come to win a war. Because although the forgiveness of sins is not absent from the Old Testament, it's there, it's, it's clear and even central, In the Old Testament, God often shows His saving power by saving His people from their circumstances. So when they're in slavery in Egypt, He saves them by delivering them out of slavery. When they're in bondage in Babylon, He saves them by getting them out of the city of captivity. And of course, the Jews had taken their cues from this. And in the time of Jesus, they were under tremendous Roman oppression. And they were expecting a Savior. A king on a white horse. Someone who would beat the Romans. Someone who would deliver them from their political opponents. Now, beloved, I'm going to tell you this right now. In our very own day and age, many so-called Christians never rise above this idea of salvation. The whole liberation Gospel that's been so powerful in South America and that affects American politics even at this very hour, is the idea that if God is saving, He's saving people from bad circumstances. He's lifting people up out of oppression. He's saving people from tyrannical forces. Does He do that? Absolutely. Is it the primary mission of the Son of God? Not at all. In fact, it would be beneath Him. Because there's many simply men who have delivered people from political oppression. And Jesus came to do something more than what just a man could do. He came as the God man to deliver people from their sins. This is humanity's primary problem. This is our main issue. We are sinners. The Bible says that we're under sin, we're actually under its power. And the worst part is, we're actually willing participants with sin. We're simultaneously enslaved to sin and we're willing slaves to sin. Jesus says in John chapter 8, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. And many of you have experienced this. If we were to go through this room and I were to tell you, tell me your testimony to the Christians. I would hear story after story of how I went after something that seemed innocent, or I went after something that I knew was wicked, and I wound up not being able to stop. And I wound up going further than I ever dreamed I ever would. Some of you, that story would be about drugs. Some of you, that story would be about lying. Some of you, that story would be about the demonic. Some of you, that story would be about people-pleasing. But in all of those stories, the same truth would be there. I wound up enslaved to sin. I wound up unable to stop sinning. I wound up in bondage to sin. And I want you to notice here that it doesn't just say He will save His people from the penalty of their sins. It doesn't just come along and say Jesus will save you from the consequences of your sin. It's much fuller than that. He's saying He will save you from all that sin entails. Sin places you in bondage so you can't quit. He frees you by giving the power of a new life. Sin comes with consequences, death and hell forever and a lake of fire that's real and torment that is well-deserved. He saves you from all of that. And sin comes with being surrounded by sinners who tempt you to more sin. He gives you power by His Holy Spirit not to walk in the way of those sinners. What we're talking about is a comprehensive salvation. We're talking about not just saving people from mental illnesses. Not just saving people from physical deformities. Not just saving people from tyrannical governments. But saving people from the root problem that causes all of these. We are sinners. And the Son of God has come to save us from our sins. And here's why who He is matters so much. Could God alone have saved you from your sin? Just God. Now, nobody wants to be the first person to say God couldn't do it, because we know that nothing is impossible with God. And yet, for God to save you without becoming man would leave God fundamentally compromised. For God to look over a sinful race and say, forgiven. For God to look over a a world of rebels and say, I let them all go. I make them children. Would be like a judge in a courtroom looking at a murderer and a pedophile and saying, come be my child. I forgive you. And there's the family of the abused going, what? Now the criminal is not just a criminal. Now the judge is a criminal too. Because now the criminal has committed a crime, but the judge has committed a crime too. Because the the judge has let the criminal off the hook. Are you following me? And if God looks over a sinful world and says, I'm a righteous judge, and guys who sell their daughters into prostitution can come on into my kingdom... I'm a righteous judge and liars and murderers and the sexually immoral and the greedy and those who spit on my face and those who worship false gods. They can all just come into my heaven. He would make His heaven a hell. He would spoil who He is. And He would spoil the place where He wants to reign in holiness. If God were to simply decree forgiveness and pardon and adoption to sinners, God would violate His own self. There is no salvation just in God. And what if God had sent Jesus just a man? Wow, well, let's try this thing one more time, like trying to rev the lawnmower one more time. You know, just one more go. I know, I know, Adam was bad, and I know Moses was bad, and I know David was bad, but let's do it one more time. Well, you've heard right that the uh, doing the same thing, expecting a different result, is the very definition of insanity. This book contains enough record of the human race to tell you there's no one showing up who's going to make it better. If you're looking at the current political scene and saying, man, the problem is each actor on the world stage adds their own ineptness to the current situation. Each person in in charge makes the situation just a wee bit worse. God's known that for years. And so there was no ability to just send a man but He had to send a man. He had to send a man. Because it's a man's problem that we're dealing with. It's that we are sinners. Someone has to pay for our sins. And a bunny rabbit can't pay for our sins. And a dog can't pay for our sins. And even the most advanced chimpanzee that can learn sign language can't pay for man's sins. In order for man's sins to be paid for, a man must pay for the price in order for there to be a human being of such purity and innocence that their death would be worth anything that person must be god It's the God-man who saves us. In God, we have all the holiness and purity and life that man lacks. In man, we have all the like unto ourselves of the family unity that we need. We have someone like us who can die for us. And we have someone unlike us who can offer himself as a living sacrifice for our sins. He shall save his people from their sins. Not another man, not just God, but the God-man. The God-man Jesus Christ comes. And when you watch Jesus through the book of Matthew, don't just think because He's got hands and feet, there's a mighty man. Recognize at all times, that one proceeding to His death is the God-man. That one rising from the dead is the God-man. That one promising to save me from my sins is the God-man. And that's why my salvation is so secure and complete. What a root. What an anchor for your assurance. Not in the strength of your faith today. Not in the strength of your obedience today. But in the God-man whose obedience had the perfection of his own godliness. And in the God-man who had a real obedience done by a son of David. That's who saves you. That's who redeems you. That's who dies on the cross for you and I. So, his name will be Jehovah saves, because he's Jehovah saves who saves us from our sins. But there's a little more here. I want you to notice that he doesn't just save us from circumstance, he saves us from sin. But I also want you to notice that his salvation is not an attempted salvation, it's an accomplished salvation. It's not just an attempted salvation. It's an accomplished salvation. Notice the phrase here again. He shall be called Jesus, for He will offer a salvation for people's sins. He will make a salvation possible. That's not what it says. It does not say Jesus will come and make a salvation possible for people. And we might get that idea, understandably, from the universal offers of the Gospel. The Gospel comes to us and says, whosoever will may come. The Gospel comes to us and says, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. And we might look at these universal offers of the Gospel and we might kind of reason backwards, oh, that's nice. Jesus offers salvation to all. Jesus uh, makes salvation possible to all, and here's the next step from that kind of thinking, is that you get Jesus, gentle Jesus, knocking on the door of your heart. Tap, tap, tap. Anyone want to be saved? The biblical answer is no. There's no one wanting Jesus tap, tap, tapping on their door. And we need to get rid of the idea of tap, tap, tapping Jesus. who I'm out here. Salvation's possible. If you want it, I got it. Jesus is the fireman who busts down the door, goes into the house, finds dead bodies, brings them out on both shoulders, and breathes new life into it. He accomplishes the salvation. He will save His people from their sins. He will save them. He comes and does the whole thing. Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. He who began a good work in you, Will carry it out until the day of Christ Jesus. Listen, the salvation he brings starts with dead men who brought nothing to their salvation, and it ends with God raising them from the dead and promising them to keep them until the last day. This is what's being said. And how could how could he accomplish this? Because he's the God man. Because the life that He's placed in you is the life of the God-man. As Henry Scougal put it, it's the life of God now in us in the soul of man. And so what we're seeing again and again is who He is. Jesus, Jehovah, will save His people from His sins. Who He is. Emmanuel, God with us, is the foundation. It's the the non-negotiable essential to what He would then do. And when you have a God-man dying for sins, it doesn't just make atonement possible. It makes atonement accomplished. It makes it so that the work is done. Jesus did not die on the cross and say, it's almost done. Here's the baton. He said, it is finished. Because the God man was dying for sinful men and women like you and me. Finally, this salvation brings us into his presence. What's the best thing about being saved? Being with God. Best thing about being saved? Godly kids. I mean, godly kids are good. I like godly kids. None of them are so godly that it's always fun. What about godly adults? I like godly adults too. But any of you who've been around me would say, "Well, you're not always fun. You're not. You're not. You're not my eternal treasure, Ryan. Thank you." Right? The high point of salvation is not. Civilization's transformation as much as Jesus has transformed civilizations, The high point of civilization is... The high point of salvation is not the advancement of the world mission. As essential that is. As vital as that is. The high point of salvation is you get to be with God. You get to be with God. What separates us from God is sin. Being human doesn't separate us from God. You were made in the image of God. Image and likeness of God. It's the image and likeness of God that makes it so you can commune with God. It's not being human. that separates us from God It's sin. But His name is Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. Which makes which makes the next title possible? God with us. Not God compromised with us. God happily with us. Because he dealt with our sins so he could be with us. Have you ever scanned through the Bible and thought how important this is? Just the idea that God wants to be with us. What was the best thing in Eden? I mean, Eve was awesome, and I'm sure all the fruit didn't taste like it had been wintering somewhere else. What made Eden awesome was that God walked with them in the cool of the day. You ever read carefully the the Exodus? You ever you ever noticed why God wanted Israel out of Egypt? You ever read that carefully? Exodus chapter 5, let my people go. I want to have a feast with them in the wilderness. I want to... we got dinner plans. Me and my people, Pharaoh, we're out. I want to be with Israel. Did you ever notice what Jesus says when He chose His disciples? I love this line. And He chose His disciples that they might be with Him. He chose His disciples. They might all get advanced degrees in theology. No. They might be with Him. Mary and Martha. Remember Mary and Martha? That passage gets botched. Right? you got Martha busy, 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 busy. And Mary sitting at Jesus' feet and the preacher comes along and says, we all have different gifts. No. Martha's wrong. Mary's right. She has chosen the better place just to sit at my feet. And then you get to the last chapter of the Bible. Or second to last chapter of the Bible. Behold, there's a new heavens. The new earth. And the dwelling place of God is with man. That's the high point of salvation, beloved. That's why we're saved. So we can be with Jesus. Now many of you find being with Jesus very uncomfortable. As soon as you get alone in a closet, you just feel guilty. Distracted. You feel like you are in the doghouse. God's irritable. Maybe like a seething dad who's kind of irritated is eventually going to blow up. The idea of just getting alone with your thoughts and God sounds miserable. I'll tell you what you need to take into the prayer closet. The name of Jesus. You need to take in the name of Jesus. And I'm not talking like it's some magical formula. I'm talking you think about it and you recognize who you are dealing with. The reason your prayer life is so miserable is because you think you can go directly to God. And Satan's like, oh, I like that mistake. He's got a bazillion accusations he can throw on your face, a million old sins he can bring up, a million distractions that he can bring up. We approach God through a mediator. And the mediator makes it a joy to go to God. And his name is Jesus. But when I go to God, I think about my sins. Yeah, I think about Jesus. I love it when Martin Luther was being tempted by the devil and accused by the devil. He said, The devil will bring all of my sins to my mind. And I say, Bring them on, devil. Because when You remind me of all my sins, it reminds me of my Savior, Jesus. He will save His people from their sins. The reason we can enjoy the presence of God now and through eternity and through all the difficulties of this life is because of the Mediator. It's because of Jesus. It's because He has fully dealt with our sins. Not because He's a cut above us in terms of manhood but because He's of another order entirely. He's the God-man who's fully dealt with our sins, fully atoned with them. Now I'm just going to leave you with this last thing. I'm going to be quiet after this. As we go through the book of Matthew, we are going to see the disciples sin. Right? They're going to debate who's the best. Can you imagine? We haven't had that. Imagine you come to a church meeting and we have a members meeting next Wednesday. Some elders get up and they're like, I'm number one. No, I'm number one. Like Jesus had to deal with this. He reveals to Peter, or the God the Father reveals to Peter that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter tells him how to live the rest of his life. There's no even like, I guess I just defer to you, Lord. No, Peter's got life coaching skills for the Son of God. Where is Jesus through all of those offenses? With His people the whole time. Why do we know those stories? Because those people stayed with Jesus the whole time. Beloved, you serve a Jesus who can walk with you through all the sins of this life. He can be with you through all the ups and downs and doubts and sins and falls and stumbles and confusions and dumbness and idiocy. He can, if you ever read the Gospel and go, those guys are me. They're me. That's who they are. And then just read the story and just find if you ever get a half page away from Jesus. No, He's always there with Him. Emmanuel. God with them. Because the way He deals with His sins is not the way we deal. I'm done with these people. No, I'm walking with these people all the way to heaven. Going to die for Him. Going to rise with Him. Going to come back and get Him. He's Jesus who will save His people from His sins and be God with us. Father, we come before You. We thank You for Your grace and Your mercy and Your kindness. Would you let the name of Jesus destroy the accusations of the demons when we go to pray? Would you let the name of Jesus destroy our doubts? Would you let the name of Jesus assure us of the Father's love? Would you let the name of Jesus grow our assurance? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.